This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. California's economy is actually quite booming. Its 4.2 unemployment rate is at a record low. But at the same time, experts warn that the state's labor market is particularly vulnerable to disruption from widespread automation and more and more disaggregated workers. In an era in which a lot of the world's technology continues to look upon with envy onto the state of California, the cradle where a lot of intelligence, information, and innovation is being born from AI to autonomous vehicles to computer visions to even advanced agricultural mechanisms that can give crops and pesticides better information based on the plant's needs. A lot of concerns are starting to emanate around how this innovation may actually impact our economy and what this might mean for workers. Specifically, whether we're confronting an increasingly automated labor market or grappling with how the gig economy through companies like Uber or Lyft or Postmates are reshaping the relationship between companies and workers, future governors, lawmakers, mayors, and even presidents will continue to have to address the changing nature of work. That could mean rethinking not just how we educate Californians, but really Americans of all stripes, remaking labor laws, or even considering major shifts to the social safety net, proposals that have been in place since essentially the New Deal in America, and coming up with a new way to create benefits for workers and economic certainty for workers in an era where their jobs seem to be at risk of a looming threat of going away. State governments might not be able to control everything that's sweeping the workplace. The federal government may only be able to lean in so hard given the inertia of being faced politically in Congress and a relatively slow-paced administration. But companies, academics, public-private non-partnerships and partnerships will continue to drive the way in which experimentation for how work is changing in this country might be able to be redressed. This weekend, the LA Times actually ran a long-form article on the changing nature of work, citing that the rise of automation and the gig economy has actually sparked considerable angst among American workers. A 2017 Pew poll actually found that approximately 72% of adults said that they were worried about a future where robots and computers can perform human jobs. But at the same time, the mayor of Flint, Michigan, points to those types of automated work and technologies as being able to capture disastrous outcomes for communities like lead water that has plagued its water supply in the Flint community. So how do we both strike this balance? How do we actually celebrate the innovations and technologies that are creating new economic opportunity while still balancing the worker protections that will undoubtedly guide and need to guide the workforce for the 21st century? Joining the podcast today is Dr. Carmen Rojas, the co-founder and CEO of The Workers Lab, an innovation lab that actually invests in entrepreneurs, community organizers, and government leaders to create new experiments and replicate those experiments to generate new solutions and revenue to improve conditions for low-wage workers and address vexing challenges like the broader future of work informed by automation and other aspects of the gig economy. For more than a couple of decades, Carmen has worked with foundations, financial institutions, and nonprofits to improve the lives of working people across the United States. And the Workers Lab itself underscores a very key aspect of how the shifting nature of work and the policy experimentation that may be designed to address it need not happen in the halls of government alone.
This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. So I want to I want to start with a kind of a broader concept of what it means to work in America these days. You know, there is always something interesting about the American imagination where uh, concepts like manufacturing and building things with your own two hands and making them on U.S. soil tends to get celebrated. Um, there are also concepts like the dignity of a job and being able to not only show up at work and continue to rise and get promoted or build a career in that workplace, but the ability to put food on the table and to work hard and do the right thing and perhaps leave your children a little better off than you know you were or your generation was, all of these different aspects of how America tends to function also ladder up into the concept of the American dream. But at the same time, it seems that because of these headwinds of automation and different types of work, that that nature is changing. So as you see it, if work is shifting, does the realization of the American dream also have to shift alongside it? Um, you know, I have actually been thinking a lot about this in large part because I often start conversations about my work at the Workers' Lab uh, with the story of my mom. Uh, she immigrated in the late 60s to San Francisco worked at the last Levi's factory in the Mission District and got a job cleaning an office building. And that office building happened to be a bank uh, and was offered a full-time job to work um, as a teller at that bank. And a couple of months in, uh, she was offered a no-interest loan to buy her first home. And I tell that story because I think uh, there's a way in which we can sort of think about the uh, the American dream of the 20th century and uh, imagine that it expanded and was available to everybody. And what I'm coming to sort of have more clarity around is that, you know, they, my parents uh, both immigrated to the U.S. at a time uh, when not only the American dream was possible, but there were a set of institutions in place uh, that uh, expanded the aperture of what was possible for working people. So labor organizing and union membership was nearing its peak. They immigrated at a time when social movements uh, had built sort of a, a robust uh, call and set of institutions uh, fighting for the civil rights uh, extending the civil rights available for people of color in this country. Um, and so I always think about their dream as something, my parents' dream and our current dream, right, as something that's bolstered by a set of institutions um, that believe that working people and immigrants deserve more and better. I think the difference between then and now is that we are watching and have been watching, some would argue, for the last 40 years, the uh, sort of a rapid disentangling, not, not of the dream. I think people still believe in the dream, but of those institutions that make the dream possible. And, and among those institutions um, have certainly existed uh, the, the, the workplace itself, you know, as you mentioned, working at Levi's and being able to uh, continue to earn a steady income um, from one 
place and and maybe grow there over time if if one wanted to commit to that one place. There are also, as you mentioned, um, worker advocacy, worker voice organizations, um, labor unions that help to really defend and grow the middle class by offering protections from harassment for workers to livable wages for workers, access to benefits for workers. And then there was also the institution of you know government uh, trying its best to to look out for workers of all stripes and make sure that there were the necessary protections laid upon corporations so that there couldn't be um, exploitation or abuse of those workers. Now it seems that the institution of maybe the private sector, perhaps as we were mentioning at the top, a lot of companies that are born not just in California, but in Boston, um, creating new biomedical advancements, um, institutions uh, that are privately held based in Atlanta, Georgia, that are doing incredible work in the AI and advanced computing space. Um, Institutions up and down this country are creating swift revolutions in the way we interact with the world. And yet those institutions are starting to look like the ones that are disrupting uh, the for- the balance of power here for what it means to be a worker. H- how do, do they have a role to play in the, um, you know, the realization or the undercutting of the American dream? Or is it possible that when folks point to automation or they point to the gig economy, that they're just becoming the bogeyman um, and, and sort of the scapegoat for challenges that government officials may have not already kept kept up with? Yeah, I think it's both and, right? So uh, I do believe that the private sector plays a critical role in reestablishing a safety net in advancing uh, an agenda for worker protections. And this isn't new. Like, I don't think that uh, employers need to step up and play a role that's different than one they've played historically if we look at the history of the social safety net in this country and of the set of rights and protections that were afforded to workers, a good number of them, everything, things like workers' compensation, for example, emerged because a set of employers got together and either through goodwill or unwillingness or um, frustration with navigating sort of state-by-state policies pushed for federal reform that uh, some would argue radically transformed the lives of working people. So I do believe that the private sector plays a role in sort of reweaving this social safety net. I also do believe that the private sector has played a role uh, in disrupting um, and disentangling the safety net of the 20th century. I think that there is an ethos right now that's not solely the ethos of tech or the gig economy. I think that there's an ethos in business that's really organized around breaking rules and then making rules, uh, moving into places, standing up uh, businesses without thinking about the long-term consequences on both the people who need to interact with the business, but also on the working people who need to um, power those businesses. I think uh, gig, uh, the rise of the gig economy is often pointed to as a, um, sort of a, a nefarious emergence of a new type of capitalist. But I would argue that the rise of the gig economy is the canary in the coal mine. And what it has signaled 
is that we have a set of public sector institutions that have failed to acknowledge their role in protecting working people, that we have a set of capital incentives that have failed to recognize that making more and more and more money off of keeping more and more and more people poor is not the right thing to do. And so I, I truly think that we are, um, we are at a crossroads and we've been sitting here for some time. I'm really hopeful. I think one of the gifts of running an organization called the Workers Lab and getting to sit at the center of experimentation is um, what some might call like a boundless optimism that the private sector and the, and the public sector will step up in service of addressing issues of income inequality, disparities in power in the workplace. And frankly, like just to make sure that at, that fundamentally working people have what they need to live lives of dignity in this country. And, and part of that dignity um, is really on how do you invest in not only the access to um, an economic certainty, you know, you know, capital today, money today, the ability to pay the bills today, but also sort of this upward mobility, the, the concept that um, by, you know, showing up to work, by doing the right thing, you can continue to grow in that role and your collective prospects might be a little better off than, you know, the generation before you. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the Workers Lab itself and some of the experimentation that you speak of? Uh, and I, I, I'm very interested in the work specifically because, um, you know, in, in one of uh, Barack Obama's last speeches in office, he said that the next wave of economic dislocation, you know, that very threat to upward mobility may not come from the globalization and open trade debates that we had a lot during the 90s, but it may actually come from the, relent the relentless pace of technology and new innovations that kind of challenge middle class jobs. And yet when someone digs into the workers lab, um, you don't expressly actually pin blame upon any one technology or any one company, but really ask for how do you create, um, you know, 21st century uh, workplace protections, 21st century organizing principles for this modern economy, and you do this through experimentation. What does that actually look like so far for the Workers Lab, and what's your vision for continuing to scale this experimentation to address upward mobility in this country? Yeah. So we were founded uh, a little bit over four years ago in partnership with the Service Employees International Union, really to try to figure out um, how we can create the room for for-profit entrepreneurs, nonprofit worker organizers, public sector leaders uh, to actually experiment. It felt like in the world of uh, worker right, worker well-being, worker power, that the, there was a limited role from ex, for experimentation. And so we really adapted the language and almost like the signals of the tech sector of disruption and innovation uh, to help uh, us inform uh, a body of work that was organized around the need to try new things. And so most practically, we do things like we have an innovation fund this year, uh, we received almost 800 applications and uh, alone, uh, where we invite uh, our for-profits, non-profits, and government actors to apply. They get $150,000 and get to try something new. 
We funded everything from the creation of a fab lab uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, to uh, an exploration of what the cannabis industry might mean for retail and security workers in the state of California. So that is sort of the broadest pool of support. We do things as well, like uh, we run design sprints that are focused on uh, solving a very discrete issue. And I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but our current design sprint is trying to figure out how you get working people $1,000 when they need it with the least amount of friction. Lastly, when we have something that works, we make a three-year commitment to supporting the leaders of that organization or project to actually try to get to scale. And our current project is here in the state of California. Uh, we have launched, in partnership with a number of organizations, uh, the nation's first labor cooperative or labor trust that's owned by agricultural workers uh, at the 10th largest ag company in the country. At its peak, it'll be 2,500 workers who own uh, revenue stakes in the company, but who are currently, and sometimes for the first time, uh, for, for many of the workers for the first time ever, have access to full-time 24-hour health benefits, have seen a, an increase in wages, and are getting to work together to reset what agricultural work looks like in California. You know, the question of automation has come, like it has, um, <laughs> it has dogged us in large part because we're in, in the Silicon Valley. We use the language of tech and we're always invited into the conversation. And I feel like the, the problem with the current framing and with, you know, President Obama's framing of the threat of automation is that it assumes that no one is in control. It assumes that there's some manufacturing plant somewhere that's, <laughs> that's building robots that are soon gonna be unleashed onto fast food restaurants or child care centers, onto construction sites, and then they will automatically displace workers. And history has taught us a couple of things about the introduction of technology in the workplace. So first, what we know is that it often leads to the creation of new types of jobs that we hadn't anticipated. It also tells us that there are people who should be held responsible for ensuring that automation doesn't occur at the expense of working people. And, and I think that those people are elected officials. Um, there are a number of really interesting projects happening at, across the country where uh, uh, City governments are trying to grapple with the introduction of automation that may uh, disrupt the lives of workers and trying to figure out, so do they tax companies that do this? Do they subsidize companies that don't? Do they, do they regulate companies that introduce automation and displace workers? I think that the, the, the story, even in, in the LA Times article, but the general story about automation wholly disconnects it from human beings that have the power to make sure that in introducing new technologies into the workplace, that it doesn't come at the ex expense of working people in this country. 
That's a really good point about this notion of, you know, that there isn't just a, a a villainous manufacturing CEO seated in in his or her boardroom just petting like you know a fat cat in a cartoon, um, you know, <laughs> printing these robots off of the manufacturing line and then putting them in 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 uh, you know replacing jobs overnight. Um, it's it, it's interesting because. Some folks could argue that the work that you're doing with the Workers Lab or even the fact that presidents of the United States are having these conversations and drawing attention to them or lawmakers are starting to like, you know, Mayor Michael Tubbs in Stockton, California, try and introduce new policy interventions like a testing how a universal basic income may work. All of these disparate conversations, they may not have resolved, you know, this this quote unquote threat of automation overnight, but they are elevating the debate of it. Right. And it's certainly not a conversation we've had um, as a country, you know, up until a few years ago. Uh, I'm curious, how do you strike from, from where you sit? How do you strike that right balance? I mean, it sounds like certainly in the example of the agricultural cooperative, you've worked with a a company um, and its workers to both create that, you know, stronger access to health benefits, to stronger wages, while also ensuring that that agricultural company can continue to thrive. It seems that so much of this debate that we've had as a country, when you look at the Pew data that I mentioned earlier about the threat of jobs, or if you look at McKinsey data, which tends to model which sectors are most susceptible to, you know, jobs being obsolete. It's always structured in this binary that this uh, you can only have X technology at the expense of Y job. And yet if we have these conversations as a society, one should anticipate that we might be able to block and tackle or account for that or talk about responsible innovation in R&D as opposed to just R&D for R&D's sake. Have you noticed that there's an ability to capture that balance or is that sort of the holy grail that we're all sort of um, trying to figure out here? I think it's the holy grail that we're all trying to figure out. I, I um, more and more am sort of shocked by the lack of incentive for uh, business to actually um, meet this holy grail, right? Like there, there actually seems to be a disincentive for businesses or or uh, or even the public sector to try to find ways that we can uh, not only continue to have a robust economy, but there's we've reached a point, I believe, where there seems to be an implicit trade-off necessary in order to make a lot of money in this country. And that trade-off happens on the backs of working people. Um, And until we come to terms with that, I'm not sure... Um, this is where like my, my the Debbie Downer in me kicks in. You know, I uh, I can't imagine how we move forward unless more people take responsibility for the ways that they have power over over shaping our economy. And this is that includes investors, the range of investors that exist that are supporting both new startups that are invested in uh, existing tech companies. Um, And it means public sector leaders, elected officials like Mayor Michael Tubbs, uh, not only experimenting, but uh, using the full weight of his position or their position to uh, be able to shape an, an economy that can actually deliver uh, that can deliver for working people. 
Yeah, and that that experimentation seems to be at the heart of this um, of, of all of these challenges. I want to back up to kind of on the experimental side, or with that frame in mind, something that you mentioned earlier, which is. Um, you know, the characterized as the $1,000 problem. Some people colloquially refer to it as the $400 problem. And and you've written um, and spoken about this quite extensively, including with the great piece um, that you published on the Rockefeller Foundation's website. Um, it's about this notion that most Americans, you know, it's one thing to talk about the jobs of tomorrow and that social safety net that may be disrupted. And that that is an incredibly important debate and conversation we ought to continue to have and experiment around. But there's another aspect of this, which is a problem facing many Americans today, uh, regardless of the prospect of, you know, which job may be replaced by an algorithm. There is an access to capital challenge that plagues many Americans, notably that if an accidental emergency bill sprouts up or a last minute expense sprouts up, that many Americans may not even have the right amount of cash in their bank account to account for that and pay for that immediately. And a lot of that is because of wage stagnation in America. A lot of that is because of rising inequality in which wealth is consolidated you know, in, in the hands of too few. Um, a lot of it could also be argued to be an issue with regards to just the way pay periods tend to work. Even for those that are fully employed, getting your paycheck two weeks from now, if you're working paycheck to paycheck, doesn't allow you to spend uh, money as freely as you may want to on that $400 medical bill. Uh, what is that that challenge, that $1,000 problem represent um, for America, particularly in the pathway towards not just financial inclusion, but striking that balance between the economic certainty of having cash now versus that upward mobility of being able to grow and accumulate cash over time? Yeah. Um, so, like many people, I was uh, <laughs> floored might be generous of a word, but uh, really shocked. Uh, this time last year, a bunch of really amazing research came out talking about how nearly half of Americans didn't have access to this $400 and pointing to the fact that the vast majority of these people had jobs. So, uh for me, it came, what came to head was this, uh, this that was the truest ex uh, expression of accepting the fact that you can work 40, 50, 60 hours a week in this country and live in poverty. And we have accepted that as a norm. You know, there are, you know, who knows how many both public sector and philanthropic endeavors focused on the working poor without ever questioning the rationale or trying to disrupt that as a, as a normal category. And I just refuse to, <laughs> to believe that, you, that working and poverty need to go hand in hand in this country. And so we started um, last year on this pretty interesting adventure. Um, um, I knew then, like I know now, like you said, Dickham, that, you know, working people need access to all kinds of capital, right? They need access to things like increase in wages to meet day-to-day -day needs, but they also need access to debt to buy a house or a car. They need access to emergency money because everybody has an emergency expense, and most people cover that through savings, but for for poor working people in this country, access to capital comes at a premium. 
And so we wanted to figure out how do we tie together the conversation around the need to increase wages uh, with sort of a broader conversation about the range of money types that people need to live in this country. And we set out to do a design sprint. And so we adapted what Google uses for product design and with support from both Google and the Rockefeller Foundation, convened a pretty amazing group of folks to try to figure answer three questions. So one, how do we get working people the money they need when they need it? Uh, two, uh, how do we do that in a way that doesn't require them uh, to actually pay anything in or that reduces the friction where there is no friction for the working person? And three, who pays? And so we started off um, as a team really trying to understand the problem. And it is more dire than you can imagine. People working day in and day out and not being able to cover not only their basic needs, but these unexpected expenses and coming to the realization that these unexpected expenses could spiral somebody down a staircase of poverty, right? So I heard the story of a woman who lost her Metro card in New York. She lived in one of the outer boroughs, but losing her Metro card caused her to lose her job. And she just didn't have the couple hundred bucks to pay to replace that monthly card. And that's a real problem. Um, so we have decided that we are going to work with a set of companies um, and we're interested in a mix of both sort of 1099 contracting platforms and traditional W-2 employers to pay into a fund. That fund would then be, uh, would make money available to working people in case they have an emergency expense. And for this, for us, this is like a real test of the bounds of the safety net. So historically, the safety net was really focused on planned or long-term costs that working people face, things like healthcare and retirement. But what we kept hearing, and this $400, right, that half, nearly half of Americans don't have access to $400, pointed to the fact that uh, the safety net actually needs to be broader. It needs to account not only for the needs that people are going to have in their later years, but the needs that they have today. And we wanted to have a demonstration project of what it would look like and what it would mean for working people to meet that need today. Um, to your last question about um, uh, wealth concentration and decreased in income inequality, like these, these, um, these trade-offs, I feel like we are at a point where uh, it is generous to say that uh, working people are suffering. Uh, I, I actually uh, think that working people in this country are living um, in a really schizophrenic state where everything around them tells them that if only they work a little bit more, if only they go to a specific training, if only they save 50 cents from every $5 check, if only they do something more, they will, or if, if only they had done something better, um, they would be better off. And I, and I think that their uh, working people and poor working people in this country are experiencing 
a level of trauma of what it means to actually need to reconcile the reality that you can't take care of your kids, you can't spend time with your loved ones, you can't make ends meet on the one side. And on the other side, you're spending the vast majority of your time trying to piece together a schedule of work or a work routine that allows you to scrape by. You buy that? Yeah, and that, I, I do, absolutely. And I think that it's actually on display um, for for anyone in the country right now, for anyone wants to see or take a look at this um, this challenge and the outcry that and that sort of trauma that you speak of um, playing out in a very material way. Um, anyone who has walked past a hotel chain, particularly those Marriott hotels um, within not just California but around the country, they they'll probably see workers picketing right now. Um, you know crying out about uh, wage stagnation that affects them and their jobs, but also signs that the picketers are holding actually say one job should be enough, that um, we should not necessarily need to stitch together odds and ends, um, incomes from various different sources, um, not just because that is not a, a, a meaningful or dignity-led way, or sorry, a, a way to lead a life with dignity and work in a life with dignity, but it also just challenges their ability to just earn and, and be there for their families and for their loved ones in a way that doesn't feel exploitative. Um, but, you know, I'm curious, I'm curious, you, you mentioned the safety net. Um, it, it seems that in a very real way, um, that safety net, both in the way that it's structured today, as you outlined, is not working or has not worked the way it was designed to for workers, um, even if they feel fully employed. Another aspect that's sort of pulling at the tensions around our, our modern safety net um, has been on how workers that might be, you know, employed part time um, or work as independent contractors, you know, whether it is in the gig economy or it is in another space, um, the social safety net hasn't really been built to look out for them also, in this country, a lot of the worker protections that you enumerated, you know, whether it's access to workman's comp or retirement or health care, um, it's all tied to full-time W-2 employment. Do you think then that having that conversation around creating a new safety net, a new set of organizing principles for this modern economy is the right one to have? Or do you think by talking about how we protect independent workers, we are sort of losing sight of the the union call for full-time, fully protected work in this country? I'm just kind of curious whether we should be enabling this type of work and trying to protect it or whether we should be trying to shift it and, and shoehorn it into the current model and sort of the conventional W-2 full-time employment model. Yeah, you know, we this is like the the if the first thing that dogs us is the robots, the second thing that dogs us is the geek economy. And oftentimes I I um I often say that uh, I give like very practical examples and I don't fundamentally believe that if you work at a low wage W2 job in this country that you are less poor or have greater certainty than if you work as a 1099 contractor, right? So, and we know that from the data. So although there are a set of laws in place to protect and support low-wage workers, their ability to access or activate those laws to their benefit are nearly impossible. And so just the simple, um, the simple example is like a wage theft, 
So you work at a fast food restaurant, your employer or manager is asking you to clock out and keep on working. The burden is almost entirely on the low-wage worker, both to document, to file a complaint, to find a lawyer, to file a complaint, and to sit in through a protracted process that uh, rarely, if ever, actually uh, results in their in their benefit or like their ability again to activate these rights uh, or protections. So I think it's um. I don't think that the argument should be make everybody a, a W-2 worker because when we have, you know, right now the vast majority of workers are W-2 workers and they're using 1099 work or temporary work to supplement their income. That for me is like the truest expression that the current uh, structure of work, um, not the classification, but what people are allowed to be paid for working in the places where they work. Um, it's just not meeting, uh, not meeting their needs and not meeting our needs as a society. And so I also, I also think that there's an interesting uh, and necessary conversation to be had about, you know, if it's not classification, how do we think about a set of benefits that uh, actually help sort of stabilize people? We've been like playing around with the language of benefits for being what are the core sets of benefits that people need to live lives of dignity in this country? And we know that, you know, everything from healthcare to, you know, access to free K through college can be critical to stabilizing uh, families and to ensuring sort of generational economic opportunity. But the, the trick or the, yeah, I mean, that's the best word. The trick of the 20th century safety net is that it was really cobbled together, right? It was like a set of laws that over time were put into place and often uh, placed the burden on the most vulnerable to actually exercise their rights uh, and um, force them to need to navigate sort of arcane systems and really deep bureaucracies, I wonder what it would look like, especially in this political climate, for a group of people to start to reimagine a safety net that is actually thinking more broadly and isn't trying to solve problems sort of piece by piece or classification by worker classification, but instead saying, you know, we, in order to live in this country, people need a sort of baseline set of benefits and services, and the government is going to step up to create that um, uh, that system uh, of a safety yeah. net. Is that helpful, Vikram? No, it's, it's totally helpful, and I think that it gets to the heart of trying to figure out um, how we actually maintain worker voice central to this conversation, right? That uh, it, the debate around um, these new forms of work have all all too often placed the companies and maybe the technologies driving the growth of those companies on one side of the equation and the labor unions that, as you mentioned early, 
earlier have who have which have fought for such critical protections in this country uh, on the other side of the equation but maybe that's not the right debate to be having at all maybe it's how do you keep the the workers voice and their needs based off of their unique circumstances and the benefits they may need um, to to complement the rest of their lives that should be at the central part of the the debate um, and not necessarily take a look at how older institutions or newer institutions feel the world should look like that's right I, I, yeah, no, that's absolutely right. So we're, we're going to take a, a quick break. And, and when we come back, we'll be speaking with Carmen about how uh, the, the growth of, of unions may, may shift over time and, and what new models we might have in store around the corner. Entrepreneurista, a woman who organizes and operates a business, taking on greater than normal financial risks in order to do so. One who has a drive, passion, and vision with an undying determination to succeed. She is fiercely motivated, ambitious, and competitive, forging her own path to independence and success. That's an entrepreneurista. Through the conversations on the Entrepreneurista podcast, we want to celebrate failures, reflect on successes, and get unfiltered about what it takes to be your own boss. This is the Entrepreneurista podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have, with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done, and what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram, with no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Check out all our latest episodes at entrepreneurstapodcast.com. So, so Carmen, I, I I know that we've we've chatted a fair bit about what it means to experiment in this country. Um, how do we actually think about benefits in this country? How do we think about financial inclusion in this country? All with an eye towards workers. Uh, one of the the most important challenges to workers is not just you know a technology that may impact their job, um, but it might be a challenge to the very labor unions uh, which have fought for worker protections um, since you know the the dawn of of workplace challenges and concerns, and frankly, in a, in a ro- very robust way in this country since the New Deal. Um, some of these challenges that new technologies or new forms of work pose um, are also challenges to the efficacy of unions and the, the, what, the voice that labor has in these debates. Um, very recently, the Supreme Court actually ruled uh, in a case called Janus, um, which would impact the ability for unions to collect dues from certain members, um, which is another threat to kind of the, the growth and rise of unions. And now, particularly when we have um, more and more Republicans Republicans and the GOP controlling um, not just you know branches of the executive sorry not just branches of the government federally um, but also a lot more governors house uh, governors mansions across the country um, the threat to unions is felt in a very palpable way uh, I'm curious how you at the workers lab reflect on this changing um, mode around unions will they continue to be a critical entity and institution that helps advance workers' rights in this new economy? Um, or do unions uh, need to de- de- sort of take a hard look in the mirror about how they continue to compete and grow and provide those protections given these new workplace models and these new dynamics of the politics in their regions? Yeah, I think it's both and, right? So um, 
in the year of the Janus ruling, we saw some pretty remarkable uh, gains made by working people because of their affiliation or in relationship with unions. So we saw teachers striking and winning uh, pretty amazing both contracts, but also benefits for their students. Um, in places like Arizona and Kentucky, we saw fast food workers and port workers in New York um, uh, fight and win for some really amazing, not only sort of wage increases, but also the ability in New York City now to, uh, for fast food workers to organize uh, uh, and give dues to worker organizations. I feel like we're just, we're, it's, uh, it's really interesting because on the one side, I think working people are at their wits end, right? And so they are organizing, they are fighting. A lot of the strikes that we have seen have happened um, uh, not as close uh, in proximity to unions as we would like. Um, but I tend to believe that they would not have happened at all had we not had a robust uh, labor movement or labor tradition uh, in this country. I think collective bargaining continues to be sort of the, a critical way for workers to gain uh, access to increased wages, protections, and benefits in the workplace. And I also uh, think that it may not be enough right, that um, there has to be, there can't just be one way to get to that end. There have to be many ways. And so our job is really to be in line and to recognize the power of things like collective bargaining while also supporting those experiments and um, attempts to sort of get to the same end uh, in ways that are less, less contestable um, and that uh, allows for working people to be truly vested in the institutions they've created. So, you know, I've talked a little bit about the cooperative work, but, you know, we supported the creation of a certification company in Texas for the construction industry, supported uh, a, a group of restaurant, uh, the Restaurant Opportunity Center United to develop an, on, an online mobile training tool that allows low-wage restaurant workers to move to fine dining work, but using that as an opportunity to organize those workers, teaching them their rights in the workplace. Um, I think that there's like an infinite um, landscape. I'm a thousand flowers bloom type of person. And so I, uh, we, are, we are seeding those thousand flowers right now. And, and I'm not only excited, but... Um, um, so energized by the ability of people from very different worlds to come together and try to uh, find these new ways to build powerful workers. That being said, you know, uh, Janice, um, Janice didn't happen solely because uh, working people were not vested in the labor movement. There's been a long um, and really well-funded concerted effort to really destroy unions. I hate to sound like Darth Vader-ish, but that is also true. And I think 
we as progressives need to figure out how we protect our institutions um, and what parts of our institutions need to keep on going. You know, I, I'm really proud of our partnership with SEIU in large part because they, as a union, are spending resources and have spent resources trying to seed uh, not only the next generation of institutions, but the next generation of approaches that are going to be necessary for working people to have power in the workplace. And that that sense of power in the workplace um, is definitely something that we will continue to grapple with as a country, you know, regardless of new technologies, regardless of new work formats, keeping that that voice of the worker at the heart of all management decisions, at the heart of all union negotiations, that will continue to persist. What's incredible about the work, though, that you do at the Workers Lab is something that you mentioned earlier in the conversation, which is using the language of Silicon Valley to to do things like quote unquote design sprints to test potential policy ideas or solutions that maybe need to may, that may need to be applied to the workplace to ensure that you protect that voice and you protect their well-being. Um, part of those um, that kind of Silicon Valley way of thinking um, has really resulted in you making sure that you're not only building inroads with um, you know labor unions like SEIU that you just mentioned a moment ago, but also trying to build inroads with companies themselves that might be interested mm-hmm. in you know balancing these worker protections. Um, as you've sort of reflected on the work that the lab has already done and and other additional work streams that you have around the corner um how do you how do you make sure that the the outcomes of these experiments these these tests and partnerships that you establish with private companies how do you ensure that we can scale some of the lessons learned from them to to inform broader solutions for our country yeah you know I think critical to our work is really taking lessons from uh, the international labor movement. So we've been spending some time thinking a lot about things like co-determination, like the opportunity for worker organizations to sit at the table with employers and with government to not only set standards, but to actually uh, actively grapple with um the the need to for companies to generate profit, the need for the public sector to protect the public good, and the need for worker organizations to ensure worker well-being. That there's like an a room for debate, and I the, there are many gifts of this job, but one of the gifts that I'm most proud of is our ability to bring together and our commitment to working with uh, private sector leaders who are not only uh, curious. Uh, about what it means to uh, work, uh, to have companies that are successful um, without needing to make that success contingent on uh, workers not doing okay. Um, But also the fact that, you know, I think that there's just a new, interesting new generation of private sector leaders that are uh, trying to figure out how to situate themselves particularly in this new, in this political climate. Um, I feel like for us, you know, the way we take things to scale, I'm, it's really funny to run an organization that is neither a worker organizing nor a policy organization and say what I'm about to say. But I'm coming to, to the realization that the way that we get to scale is through social policy, right? So, 
for our design sprint, we're trying to get working people this thousand dollars, and we're trying to uh, get a, a handful of private sector companies and a government entity to pay into the fund. I'm starting to just, you know, harken back to the history of this country and say. Actually, it wasn't that a group of employers wanted it. It was that there was a willingness, there was some uh, demonstrable impact and a willingness for the public sector to advance a policy to make it happen. I also think that things like, you know, for our uh, the labor co-ops here in California, the labor trust, um, we can, you know, the uh, Jenny, JJ, and Estella, who are at the forefront of making that happen can go grower to grower and say, hey, we have this new labor model. We would love to partner with you to companies. What I'm becoming, what's becoming more evident is that that's, you know, super time consuming and uh, that it might be actually more helpful to think about the policy intervention that would uh, incent companies to actually shift their labor practices away from traditional con farm labor contracting towards this new model. Um, and so uh, for me, scale more and more is becoming the place where social policy is a, is a, like a necessary uh, approach to consider in order to make things sort of these new models available and accessible not only in the community that we start working in, but it, across that state or across our country. And, you know, I think it would be important to to sort of end on this, you know, reflecting on that very point that as you take a look at um, the different types of policy and interventions that exist, that you take a look at these new challenges um, that may, you know, kind of beg the question of how the workplace model should evolve. As you take a look at all of these different facets of working in America, um, you can also reflect on what you kicked off with at the top, that um, your mom, uh, who came uh, you know, to, to San Francisco, was working out of um, Levi's in the Mission District. Um, the sense that she had was that she could con continue to work um and you know certainly allow her daughter in this case you um to to live a life of extraordinary opportunity um and when you reflect on that you know you carmen have not you not only helped lead you not only founded and helped lead this this amazing lab that's experimenting across all of these vexing issues but you know you've worked on behalf of the kapoor foundation uh, you've worked on behalf of uh the city of berkeley uh you've worked on behalf of san francisco's even um, a redevelopment agency task force to focus on uh, African-American displacement in the city. In many respects, despite all of the shifts of technology that may have taken place from the moment that your mom started that job through this very moment that we have this conversation, these challenges to work have existed. And yet someone like you has, you know, arguably been able to realize the very dream of why your mom decides to show up at work and work hard at that Levi's location. What does that mean for you? as someone that uh, has lived out this dream and continues to reach out for this dream, but to now see workers um, at a new uh, you know, fork in the road in which that work may be challenged in a different way, does it suggest that the American dream uh, may in fact be changing? Or is it, does it mean that in your circumstances, like any other circumstances, that despite impossible odds, it is still very attainable? Mm. 
What a great question. Um, um, I, I think, you know, my mom is my most favorite person in in the planet. And uh, I think that she is absolutely amazing. And um, I also know that she, uh, you know, she never took a sick day. Um, She had like the, like a depth of pride of what it meant to be a working uh, woman uh, in this country that uh, was infectious. And um, I come from a big family. So my mom is uh, one of 17 kids and I have a bunch of cousins who are my age uh, and I have a bunch of younger cousins and I have nieces and nephews that are, you know, in their early twenties. And what's striking to me is, in that short period of time, so in a um, 20-year period uh, from the time I was 20 till now, uh, that the ability not only for people to feel like there is a dream out there for them, but that there are a set of institutions in place to help them realize that dream um, has feels like it has disappeared. And I am here and I do this work every day because I refuse to be the last generation of people that benefit from that, right? Like I'm great, not because I had um, some sort of magical seed planted in me. I'm great because my, my mom had room and time to spend with me because she uh, didn't have to worry about what we were going to eat at night. She didn't have to think about whether or not she was going to be able to afford a house. Um, And I think that there are these uh, factors that inform uh, not only our capacity to dream, but our ability to realize that are slowly withering away. Uh, And for many people have withered away, right? So I um, sort of have a depth of commitment around making sure that not only I am not the last generation of people that benefits from my mom's ability to dream, but that I'm also not the last generation of people that believes that the institutions in place that uh, where we elect people, where we pay people, where we uh, subsidize people, that those institutions in place should have my back. Uh, And I see the workers lab as the place where we can actually demonstrate that having working people's back is actually for the benefit, not only of our economy, but also to our democracy. That's an incredible point that having one's back is um, both about the workers, but also the very institutions um, that celebrate individual workers, uh, their challenges, their goals, and their pursuits and their opportunities. So thank you so much, um, Carmen, for not only- Thank you. This is great. I really do appreciate it. I appreciate you joining and, and thank you for the work that you're doing with the Workers Lab. Great. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. 
theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of the show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.